It'll be good. Hey, if you got your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Last weekend, we started into Paul's letter to the be-believing saints in Ephesus who had a beautiful faith and trust and walk in Jesus. And their faith and trust and walk in Jesus was spilling over into many sincere and honest expressions of agape love, God-like love. They were loving all the saints. We read about this church in Ephesus. This is a good church. They were doing church well. But beyond doing church well, they were being church well. And before he shared his prayer with them, Paul released a long extended sentence full of foundational truths aimed at strengthening the living and walking out of their faith. He reminded them and us about being blessed in the heavenly realms with every, every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he reminded them about being chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. And he reminded them about being predestined and adopted and redeemed and forgiven in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And then he concluded by reminding them that they were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in God. And like I said, it was one very, 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 very long extended sentence. Paul was reinforcing these compelling, significant, life-altering truths because he knew that the ongoing active practice and awareness of each of these truths would motivate and fuel a fresh desire in them to live and walk in freedom and obedience to God in his ways. Then in the first sentence of his opening prayer, Paul told them that he was repeatedly asking the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they could experientially know God better. Again, I want to make the point. Paul didn't say, at one time I prayed for you that you would get the spirit of wisdom and revelation. No, he prayed that all the time. It's a prayer that we pray here all the time. We, we want all of our gatherings, all of our meetings to be saturated with the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So, so that while we're, in the play, while, we're, while we're here, while we're gathered together, uh, it's, you're not just stuck with We're just singing just the words. Like you might be singing a song and all of a sudden you're thinking about something else. Or maybe I'm speaking and sharing something and that makes a thought. And you start thinking about something else and then... The deal is, I just keep talking, though, but you're thinking about somewhere else, and you come back and you join, you know? And sometimes people have told me, I remember, man, when you said this that Sunday, man, it just changed me. I thought, I didn't say that. I've got the notes. I can show you. I did not say that. But for me, but for me, that's not like, why weren't you paying attention? It's like, praise the Lord, you were paying attention, because we're here to hear the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And it's not just limited to when we're on the property. The spirit of wisdom and revelation is something that we can walk in and be part of every single day. And God wants us to. And so like Paul was saying, I, I repeatedly pray this for you, Ephesians. We need to put this prayer on repeat for ourselves, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be ours. Why? So that we can experientially know God Better. And I like the NIV's emphasis on better because it speaks to increase and maturity. It provokes and draws us to more passionately be in pursuit of more. You know, one of the very best prayers you can pray. First, one of the best prayers, simplest prayers, help. That's all you got to say sometimes that God will answer that. But another one that he'll answer is more. More of you, Lord. More of you in my life. More of your goodness. More of your kindness. More of your mercy. More understanding of you and your ways. Help, help me to more apply the things you've showed me and who you've called me to do. More is a very, very good prayer to pray. As with any relationship, this idea of being better, there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts to knowing better. Sometimes we can quickly grasp knowing about, but the desire of God's heart is for each of us to know him better 
to know him better. Jesus didn't come and do what he did and the Father didn't send the Holy Spirit to live within the hearts of every person who surrenders the control of our lives to Jesus just so we can know more about God. That's religion. Instead, from the very beginning, God created people like us, male and female, in his image for relationship. A footnote in the New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible says, as you read and study about God, which is vitally important, make sure you also experience his presence with you every day. Talk to him throughout the day. Ask him for wisdom and revelation. Trust him to act in your life and watch for him to do so. As you invite God into every moment of your life, you will better understand his great love for you as well as his great care and his comfort and his delight in you. And your relationship with him will thrive and flourish. Every time we recognize and receive another release of the spirit of wisdom and revelation, it deepens our relationship with God. And every time we recognize and receive another release of the spirit of wisdom and revelation, our intimate knowledge about him and his ways grows, expands, and increases. And that intimacy comes as a result of learning from, so it's not like he just shoop, 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 went right by us, but we learn from what he showed us, what he revealed to us, and we incorporated what he showed us into our daily lives and choices and actions. And then we have this growing base of real-time experiences with God. In a variety of creative ways, the Holy Spirit will give us practical skill and acumen wisdom matched with take the lid off disclosures and manifestations of revelation. The message interprets this as becoming intelligent and discerning in knowing God personally. Becoming intelligent and discerning in knowing God personally. And I just want to say, let's not settle for anything less. None of us don't settle for anything less. There's so many life-transforming insights and influences flowing from just the first sentence of Paul's opening prayer to the Ephesians. But then Paul asked for something else too. Look at verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. According to the word of the Lord in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, at salvation, God gives us an undivided heart. And he puts a new spirit in us. He removes from us our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. I was telling you last week about the time I was at the piano playing in the presence of the Lord just literally knocked me off the piano. And I was down there uh, for a couple hours. And when I got up from that experience, I kind of felt like the tin man. I felt like I got my feelings back. You know, like a heart of flesh. I could feel things again, just different things. I was busy about church stuff. I was living out my life and those kind of things. But on the other side of that, I had a heart of flesh in a different way. I got my feelings back. In order for us to live led by and in step with the Holy Spirit, one of the key things that I've found is we have to learn to trust our hearts. We've got to learn to trust our hearts. It's an essential spiritual discipline to cultivate so that we can successfully and consistently live a spirit-filled life. Now, in this prayer that Paul prayed in the Amplified, in the New American Standard, the NIV, they all aim the second prayer at the eyes of our heart. But the King James is actually closer to what Paul originally wrote. It says the eyes of your understanding. So what Paul was praying into in the second half of his opening prayer was a head issue, not a heart issue. Now, for sure, the two are connected. 
Paul used the same word later in his letter to the Ephesus. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Keeping our hearts soft and tender and quickly responsive before the Lord is so important and so necessary. We cannot afford to have a hardening of heart. I could say that to you nicely, but the way Paul would say that was this, hardening of the heart leads to ignorance. That's what he said. Anybody here want to be ignorant? No. <laughs> no hands, please. No hands, please. Hardening of the heart leads to ignorance. But listen to me. Whatever level of hardening of the heart that we tolerate will alienate us and keep us from fully participating in wisdom, revelation, and in the life of God. Yeah, whatever level of hardening of heart we tolerate will alienate us and keep us away from fully participating in wisdom, revelation, and life in God. Although many theologians endorse the use of the word heart, the Greek word Paul used is more focused on our mind. It actually means a deep thought or imagination. I was talking with somebody last night and they said, you got to this part, you were talking my language. You know, and, and sometimes when you think about imagination, in fact, in the, in the uh, Passion Bible, it says, I pray that the light of God will illuminate your imagination. And this person I was talking to has a pretty amazing mind and imagination. And they said, you know, when you're thinking about that, sometimes people talk about thinking outside the box, right? He said, when you have a really vivid imagination, there's never been a box. There's never been that limitation because you've been there. My, your mind is that much. And so this word for mind speaks of a deep thought and imagination. I pray the light of God will illuminate your imagination. This Greek word that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to use properly means the faculty of the mind and its disposition for understanding and perception. By implication, it's the exercise of the mind in order to be able to see things clearly and intelligently, and to proceed accordingly. As much as God's interested in our hearts, and he really, really, really is interested in our hearts, he's also very interested in our minds. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. In Hebrews 10, quoting from Jeremiah 31, it says, this is the covenant I will make with them, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. So I was thinking about that this week. I thought that's, that's our conscience. Pre-Jesus and post-Jesus, there's a conscience that's built into us. There's this, this awareness inside of us before you've given your life to the Lord and after when you're going the right way or the wrong way. You know it. You know it. I mean, there's just things that go off. On my, on my car right now, I have these little alarm sensors and stuff like that, that as I get close to something and beep, 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 starts you know, beeping at me or something like that. And um, in this car that I've got right now, if I'm backing out, you know, starting to back out and any traffic's coming, it starts giving me a warning that traffic's coming. But in this car that I've got, if I just ignore that warning and keep going, my car will stop. It puts the brakes on itself. But uh, I, I, Lord, give me a conscience like that that just stops me. But more often than not, what happens with our conscience is we get that warning, we get that alarm that goes off inside of us and then we've got a choice to make. And we can pretend we didn't hear it and we can ignore it. 
And if you do that long enough, what happens is you end up with a seared conscience and then you're not be able to respond to the things about life and you end up in a really, really dark place. Or we can thank the Lord that he's written his laws on our hearts and in our minds and we can be responsive to those checks and warnings, those beep, 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 beep that goes off inside so that we can stay in sync with him. In Romans 12, Paul wrote, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In 1 Peter, it says, you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So prepare your mind for action. Be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. God has not created us to mindlessly follow after him. But he doesn't want us to live mind-led either. And he knows better than we do that every mind needs divine intervention. In the upper room, uh, on the evening of his resurrection, Jesus was speaking with his disciples. And then it says he did something amazing. He opened their minds. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Who, who wants some of that? Yes, Lord, open our minds. Open up our minds so that we can understand the scriptures. However much we've known, however much we've studied, there is more. Your words are living and active. They are loaded with revelation upon revelation, precept upon precept, truth upon truth. There is more. Open up our minds. Don't let us be satisfied for what we've read or what we know. Open up our minds so that we can understand what you have given to us in the scriptures. At the end of his first letter, one of Jesus' disciples, John, used the same word Paul used when he wrote, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may absolutely know him is true. In the Amplified, it says, we have seen and know positively that the Son of God has actually come to this world and has given us understanding and insight progressively to perceive and recognize and come to know better and come to know more clearly him who is true. In order for our heart and our mind to receive understanding and insight progressively, we need the eyes of our heart and the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened. And that word for enlightened means to have it made visible for us. And in the definition of uh, enlightened, there's several ways that it can happen. One of the ways enlightened happens, it's rays of light that are shed upon us. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, I know what that is. That's those aha moments. You know, you've been looking for something, you've been trying to think of something, you can't figure out something. Boom, all of a sudden you just know, you've got the answer. Enlightenment came. There's other times when uh, light is shined on us and it's like a spotlight. It's like you're trying to figure out which way to go or it's like it's a multiple choice test and you're looking at three answers and they all look, any of those could be the good answer. Which one is the good answer? And then the enlightenment comes, this is the answer. This is the way and you see it. That's this, that's this enlightenment for our heart and for our mind. I also think that enlightenment can work Things that we've learned and things that we know, but we forgot. And as I get at 62 and rolling past 62, there's a lot that I forgot. But the enlightenment can come and all of a sudden something that I've had in me that's covered up now, all of a sudden it's back and I've got it again. And I'm able to remember it. And I'm able to use it. One other way, um, uh, hidden things can be illuminated. And as I was thinking about this, I thought this is like the one where the Holy Spirit whispers in your ear and says, you're trying to figure, I don't know which way to go. And then this little whisper says, go this way. And it's almost like, like uh, your, your maps pop up and there's the road and it just starts, gives you the directions all the way to there. If you're willing to listen. Sometimes I still struggle with that, that 
theory telling me, take a ride, take, I can drive, I know the way, I know where I'm at. But, but sometimes I wrestle with that with the Holy Spirit too. But his enlightenment comes to us and he'll direct, he'll direct us turn by turn if we'll receive the enlightenment and the direction that he's giving to us. Paul identified three benefits to being enlightened. He said they're hope, riches, and power. Sign us up for that. Hope, riches, and power, right? Notice that rather than the general, just bless them, good God, kind of a just blanket prayer that he could have been praying over this church in Ephesus, Paul was praying some very specific things. And let me encourage you that when you're praying for people in uh, circumstances and situations, be specific. I think sometimes we're afraid to pray specific because we think, well, maybe I don't know if I'm praying the right thing or not. Uh, also, sometimes I think it's unbelief. We're afraid if we pray for something specific and it doesn't happen, then where are we going to be with all of that? But here, here, when you just pray in general, you don't know if it got answered or not. When you pray specifically, you'll know, did that get answered or did that not get answered? And I want to I encourage us, pray specifically. And if what you're praying into doesn't happen, what you're asking for, well, then that creates another conversation with God. Okay, God, I had this on my heart to pray and this is what I've been praying, but it hasn't happened. What's going on there? Sometimes you'll say, keep praying. It's not time yet. Again, talking to somebody last night who had a heart condition 20 years ago that a part of their heart had died. Now, 20 years later, they just got some tests and guess what? They don't have any dead parts in their heart. You know, that's, that's a God thing. But if you were praying for his heart 10 years ago, you think, well, God's not hearing our prayers. But 20 years and now his heart is completely restored. There's no explanation for it other than God. And so sometimes we get something specific we're praying for and it hadn't happened. That doesn't mean stop praying. That means keep praying into that. But also sometimes when it doesn't happen, it's like, am I on the right course? Am I, is, is this, am, am I asking what you want when you're praying or is this my idea? What's your idea? How do you want me to pray? But I just encourage you, when you pray specifically, you'll find out, answered or not. And it's just a healthier way to go at it. It's a better way to do it. Paul knew that they needed to be enlightened so they could know the hope to which God had called them, riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and God's incomparably great power for those who believe. During this series on opening prayers, every week I've talked about experiential knowledge. And that is what Paul asked for related to the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they would have an experiential knowledge of God. They would know him better that way. But in the second part of this prayer, the enlightening and understanding he's praying for is a different kind of knowing. And the kind of knowing that he's praying for is more intuitive than experiential. It's the kind of knowing that comes with intelligent perception by sight. Intelligent perception by sight. It's the same kind of knowing the wise men referenced when they asked, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw, we know we saw his star when it rose in the east. And we have come to worship him. I think it's interesting that just this level of knowing is more than enough to draw us and provoke us to worship God. But it's always our choice. Romans 1 has this caution. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood for what has been made so that all people are without excuse. But then it talks about people who, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And there was a consequence. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Instead, as some of the lyrics from the song So Will I so beautifully say, if the stars were made to worship, so will I. If the mountains bow in reverence, so will I. If the oceans roar your greatness, so will I. 
If everything exists to lift you high, so will I. More often than we realize, we need awakened, resolved, enlightened, open hearts and clear minds in order for us to see and know a fuller revelation of the hope of our calling. To live in this kind of hope means we recognize that there's an open invitation to God by name. He's called us by name. Not, although he says, I want all y'all, like I was saying last week, but he's called us individually by name. And there's a calling on our lives. And there's a constant opportunity we have to live out every day with a confident expectancy of God working in and through our lives. And I use the word expectancy, not expectation, because expectation puts a box on God and he doesn't live in a box anymore. And a lot of times we're looking for God to work in a little small box and he's working all around it and we're frustrated he's not doing the stuff in our box. Constant expectancy is I don't know how it's gonna be. I don't know what it's gonna look like, but I know sometime today you're gonna show yourself. You're gonna be with me. You're gonna revere and I'm gonna be with you. It's gonna happen. And it creates this uh, in, in energy of us looking and to find him. Specifically, the confident expectancy of hope relates to our calling. God has called us toward a completed righteousness, a completed righteousness. Hopefully most of us in the room are taking steps down the path of righteousness this morning, but there's more to go. There's more to go. And that's because we're still here. If we, were, if we had completed righteousness, check onto the next, onto the next world, but we're here. There's a completed righteousness. And there's also, he's called us to the full redemption of our bodies. One day, these earthly tents that we live in, they're going to wear out. And when that happens, the mortal gets clothed with the immortality and the perishable gets closed with the imperishable and when that happens what's written has been true death gets swallowed up in victory and God has called that to each one every every breath every moment of this life is precious we never know how many we have left every moment is precious but we're living for the next life and there's a calling on our life that doesn't finish when this life is done that actually this life launches in last breath here next breath with him in heaven. There's a commentator that I read this week and he said this, God doesn't call a believer to hope for the forgiveness of our sins. That's already been taken care of. That's already been paid for. They're gone. The hope of his calling is to see him and to be one with him. The hope of his calling is to see him and to be one with him. One day when Jesus returns, we will be changed and we'll be able to see him as he is and we will be like him. Such a glorious hope should inspire us towards holy living. As we saw in Paul's opening prayer to the Thessalonians, there's also a place to be aspired to and attain in this hope of our calling where God counts us worthy of his calling and a place where God fulfills every good purpose of ours and every act prompted by our faith so that the name of Jesus is glorified in us and us in him according to the grace of God that is at work in us to know the hope of his calling and to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints notice that it doesn't say his glorious inheritance for the saints it says his glorious inheritance in the saints we talked about he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in christ and several of these prayers there's this exhortation don't just wait to get to heaven to experience this stuff draw that stuff down into your life bring that into your life but then the second half of this prayer that's not what paul's praying for 
He's praying about the glorious inheritance that God has in the saints. It's a different emphasis. Paul is praying for them and us to recognize that God has an inheritance in us. God thinks of us as his inheritance. It says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. We're part of the joy that was set before him. He saw us. He saw people like us pursuing him, giving our lives to him, serving him. And for that joy, he, set, he went through all the stuff that, is endure, that he endured on the cross. God has an inheritance. We are his inheritance. We're the treasure in the field. We are the pearl of great price that Jesus spoke about in one of his parables. The creator of all values us more than all other created things. And beyond that, God delights in partnering with people like us to accomplish his purposes. Paul prayed for them in every hear and reader sense <coughs> to catch a glimpse of the blessing that it is to be used by God. As we faithfully submit ourselves to God, as we keep making ourselves available to be used by him, however and whenever he chooses, we'll discover the riches and the release and the fulfillment of getting to live in sync with God in his ways, being able to partner with God. Man, it's such a humbling, gratitude-inducing privilege and experience. But like you were hearing in some of the words this morning, here it comes again. We have a choice. And if we choose to limit the access of ourselves and our time and our talent to God, if instead of keeping Jesus on the throne of our life, we start living out, not your will, but mine be done. Or if we're afraid to let God use us. You know, sometimes we talk about fully surrendering to God and then this little thought that consistently comes is, yeah, but he's gonna send you to Africa. Listen, if your destiny is in Africa, he's going to send you to Africa. But, but God's not like that. It's not like him just sending you off on this wild, crazy, to this place you would. That's not our God. Some place you don't want to go. I was talking to a couple last night afterwards, and they were, she, the wife was telling me that they, they uh, moved to one place. They said, don't say God won't send you where you don't want to go because he sent us to this place. My husband wanted to go there. I didn't. Well, I said, well, that's because you're one. So, I mean, one of you wanted to go there, so that's what got you there. Uh, so, so I'll amend it this morning and say, the vast majority of the time, God will not send us someplace that we don't want to go. You don't have to worry about that. That's, that's not the way he works. In fact, most of the time what happens when we say, here we are, send it, something that's been stirring in our heart, a door, an opportunity, a longing that we've had, he'll open a door for that place and give it to us. But if we choose to be afraid, I don't, I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know where he's going to send me. Then we'll lose our zest. We'll lose our edge for living in the life abundant and full Jesus came to give us. We may try to keep going through the motions, but that usually leads to us becoming more and more religious. And then shortly thereafter, we become more and more self-righteous. And shortly thereafter, we drift away eventually all the way out of an active, ongoing, submitted relationship with God. Deception's very deceiving. Deception is very deceiving. Lord, protect us from that. Even now, enlighten our understanding to see the riches of your glorious inheritance in us. Not our will, but yours be done. Here we are, Lord, send us. We trust you. We trust you. We trust your ways. You trust your heart. We trust the plans. We trust the purposes you have for us. I pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened to know the hope of your calling and the riches of an inheritance and its incomparably great power for us who believe. Incomparably is an athletic word. It means to throw beyond the usual mark. 
Great speaks of magnitude and size and extents. Power is the word dunamis, a dynamic level of power marked by continuous productive activity or change for us who believe. Paul wasn't saying that this power is only available at moments we believe. That's the way we think about it a lot of times. What Paul was saying is that this surpassing level of power is constantly available in us who believe. It's always in us. When we're moving in full-scale unbelief, that power is still there. That's what gets us back on the right track. It's not your willpower, it's the power of God. The dynamic, continuous, productive activity and change that God produces in our lives. In the Passion, it says, I pray that you will continually experience the immeasurable greatness of God's power made available to you through faith. And then your lives will be an advertisement of this immense power as it works through you. Another commentator I read this week insightfully noted, this surpassing all limit power of God can only be limited in its working by a believer's failure to believe. This surpassing all power of God can only be limited in its working by a believer's failure to believe. And it made me think of the father at the bottom of the mountain after Jesus came down from being transfigured and the disciples have been praying for his son not getting anywhere and the father asked Jesus, if, if you can, if you, if you could do something. And Jesus said, if you can, anything is possible with God. And the father said, Lord, I believe, forgive my unbelief. And that's what we just need to do too. In those places where we have, Lord, I believe, forgive the places. Get the unbelief places out of us. A healthy way to understand this word for believe, I found this week and I love this. A firm conviction of the truth with an ongoing surrender to that truth. But here's the key, matched by a lifestyle consistent with that surrender. Whoo, that's good, isn't it? Believe, a firm conviction of the truth with an ongoing surrender to that truth matched by a lifestyle consistent with that surrender. Mm. Second half, verse 19. The, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. That word for working means energy efficient, effectual working. It's nothing wasted. The word for working comes from the word in a fixed position of active operative work. It never is turned off. His mighty strength describes great vigor and dominion. It's the most powerful thing on the planet. And it's the same phrase Paul used in his opening prayer to the Colossians, to be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for a reason, so that they could have great endurance and patience. Later in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul used the same word. He said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Same word. And that is the precursor to us being outfitted and equipped to take our stand in the armor of God. This is resurrection power. Jesus' resurrection destroyed the power of death that the devil had previously held. And Jesus' resurrection has set us free from living out the rest of our days enslaved by the fear of death. None of us are in a hurry to die. But we don't need to be afraid of it when that day comes. Don't need to be afraid of it. Jesus' resurrection power has created a whole different thing. Resurrection power is both for this life and the next. Jesus' resurrection also established him as a way above every other form of power place of forever authority. And now Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of all of us 
who believe in him. According to Romans 8, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of us. And you keep reading in Romans 8, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives creates a unique opportunity and obligation, one, to live by the Spirit. That the power, His power is in us so we can live by the Spirit, but also to put to death the misdeeds of our sinful nature. Again, don't be satisfied living wishy-washy halfway in. If you're halfway in, you're out. Be all the way in, all the way in. By the power that raised Jesus from the dead, we can live wholehearted, fully surrendered lives to God. And we can get rid of the misdeeds of our sinful nature and be done with those. Verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The father has past tense once and for all placed Jesus over all things. And he has done this with Jesus for the benefit of the church. The church is now to function as Jesus's body in the world. Romans 12, five says in Christ, we who are many form one body. But then it says something else that's really important. And each member belongs to all the others. We're not solo operators. We belong to all the others. We are part of a body. Another New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible footnote says, Christ fills the church with his gifts and blessings. The church should be the full expression of Christ and fulfill his mission as members of one body who work interactively to do Christ's work on earth. None of us should attempt to work, serve, or worship merely on our own. We need the entire body. In his new book, The Principle of Us, Rodney Tilly wrote, Western culture thinks we can stand alone, but we know differently. For in all our successes, there was always an us involved. It was always God, others, and I. We have never done anything just by ourselves. Whether in coordination with other human beings or in conjunction with God, there is a plurality of work and accomplishments. We have accomplished everything on the backs of those who are now present or on those who have gone before. Without exception, in order to mature spiritually, we need to be part of a living, interactive fellowship of believers. Being faithful, active, participating in a fellowship of believers requires us to learn to live for more than ourselves. It will also require us to learn how to cooperate, how to love, how to defer, how to prefer, how to forgive, and how to find unity in diversity. Together with one another, we are to seek to fulfill God's plans and purposes for our day, both corporately and individually. As Paul brought this opening prayer to its conclusion, he made a climactic point by using the word church for the first time. It's the word ecclesia, the called out ones. And Paul used this same word eight more times in this letter. And in so doing, he called them and us to rise above the level of just being part of an external organization and to recognize our calling to be part of demonstrating the love of God clearly, tangibly, and boldly until Jesus returns. And the spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's stand together. Father of glory, 
Father of glory, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Father of glory, Father of glory, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. God, we really do want and need to know you better, experientially and intuitively. Even now, we welcome and receive more of your enlightenment for our hearts and for our minds. Quicken us to move in harmony with you as we fulfill the hope of our calling in ways that honor you and bring glory to your name. We're the sheep of your pasture. We owe you everything we've got. Strengthen us to do church and to be church. And as some of your dearly loved children of life, may our lives be filled with goodness and righteousness and truth. And just as Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us, may we each live a life of love as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to you. Lord, you are worthy of that. We need more of you and more of us. Thank you, Lord, for the calling on our lives. Thank you for the power that you've given us. So that's not just some pipe dream that we hope could be possible. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. And you have called us to live in that power, with that power, and by that power. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for unbelief. Forgive us for not trusting you. Forgive us for moving you off the, the place you should be as Lord of our lives and doing our own thing. Keep drawing us to yourself, Lord. Keep drawing, keep winning our hearts. Keep renewing our minds. Keep transforming us and conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And we'll give you the praise and the honor for the, and the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So good.